The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Look in your Bibles up to Jeremiah chapter 13 this evening. I can echo uh, what you shared, Miss Gloria, that it is good to be back on Wednesday nights. I enjoyed uh, diving back into the book of Jeremiah this past week, uh, even in preparation for tonight. Uh, But I would be lying if I didn't share that I don't like this time of year. After Christmas is over and it is dark at 5.30, it feels so much later than it really is. And I know many of you have worked a a full week, uh, halfway through a full week of work rather, uh, busy. And so glad that you have made your way out tonight uh, to gather together here, to pray together, sing together, uh, to look to God's Word together. Jeremiah chapter 13, we have been walking through a study of the Old Testament, and we've made our way to the Old Testament prophets, uh, now navigating our way through this book uh, named Jeremiah, written by Jeremiah, really a compilation Uh, of his sermons, of his messages, his proclamations uh, that God made through him to uh, the people of Israel. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But I want you to think to a time in your life that you have been jealous of somebody that's not a Christian. Is there ever a time in your life where you have been jealous of people that aren't living for the Lord? Jealous in the sense of I don't know, I can think back to being in high school and public school, being a Christian, being raised in a Christian family, thank God, um, and following the Lord through high school, but, but playing on sports teams and stuff like that. I can remember, you know, the light persecution. It's persecution, but it's nothing like anybody else in the world faces for their faith, but being made fun of because you're the goody-two-shoe, because you're not going to the parties, because you're not doing the things that they did. And I can remember thinking, like, wouldn't it just be fun if you could sin and get away with it for a little while? And maybe you've been there before. And I knew better because I knew sin, you can't get away with it. And I knew I had a daddy that would find out about anything I did. And by the grace of God, God kept me from a lot of things that I would have gotten into, if not uh, for what he and who he placed around me. So thankful for that. But, but there was a moment, and I think in all of our lives sometimes, we can look at people that aren't following the Lord and think they are better off than we are. And there's no other time that that's more likely to happen in our hearts than when we're going through, whether it be persecution, others that are mocking or belittling us for our faith, and we're kind of wondering, like, God, I'm following you. Why do I have to go through this if I'm really doing what's right? If I'm really, you know, following your word and following your way, shouldn't it lead to a goodness? Shouldn't it lead to blessing is our expectation. Uh, we face light persecution, uh, but we, we, we do face real suffering. And as much as persecution can lead one to such a, a temptation, uh, suffering does for us all. When things happen in our life, uh, that we'd rather not be walking through when we think, God, I'm following you, God. I, I'm, 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 I'm trying to serve you in my life, and yet I'm facing this. And it can lead you to a place of thinking it would be better off without God. A temptation. The book of Jeremiah is unique among the prophets because we, we find more about the life of Jeremiah.
Jeremiah the prophet than we do really almost of any other prophet in, in, in the, the Bible. Uh, and most of the prophets, like even Isaiah, a big book of, of, of the prophets that we looked at a little while ago, it doesn't record much about his life. It doesn't record much about his struggle as he followed the Lord in, in Everybody around him did not. When we get to the book of Jeremiah, we read, as we're going to read tonight, a lot about the struggle of Jeremiah. A lot about the even soul heartache that he went through as he found himself being persecuted and being hated, being even, as we've looked at a couple of months ago now, but a few chapters back, his life was even threatened and he was tried to, uh, somebody tried to kill him because of the message of God that he was declaring. Like, he lived a hard life. And we get a, a personal testimony to that hardship through the writing of Jeremiah. And it speaks to us powerfully because what he went through, in a way, parallels what we go through. Uh, even though it's to a much lighter degree, but the persecution we face, suffering is suffering. And the suffering that he faced and the temptations that he faced as he walked through that suffering are the same temptations you and I face even today as we walk through light persecution and as we walk through the sufferings of this life. Jeremiah is prophesying, meaning he is being a spokesperson for God. God has called him. God has sanctified him, set him apart, and said, Jeremiah, I'm going to speak to you and through you to my people. And if you have been with us, you know the people of Israel. Uh, this is a stage of their history that's one of the, the worst stages of their history. It's just before the Babylonian captivity, before God brings a great judgment upon his people. And he is writing and speaking to a group of people who are engrossed in idolatry, they're worshiping idols, Baal and other idols. There's immorality being committed that's just rampant in the, in the nation, even though they are the people of God. The, the law of God has been totally disregarded and ignored. Uh, injustices were being committed like crazy. The, the rich were in control and in power, and they were oppressing any and all who were weak and poor. The judges were judging by bribes. The prophets and priests were even preaching and prophesying and teaching based upon who could pay the most, uh, a blessing upon those that could buy it, and a curse upon those who could not. It was a very dark and corrupt day and age, more so even than what we face today, I think. You know, we like to think it's never been as bad as it is today. I'm sorry, read the book of Judges. It was a lot worse then. You read the book of, of even Jeremiah and some of the things that were going along in the, uh, on in the culture that day and age. It was bad we're, we're unfortunately not what we used to be. It's definitely declined and we're drifting further away and getting closer and closer to this. But, but hear me, God has been at work in places darker and more difficult than what you and I face today in our culture. And such was the culture of Jeremiah's day. He is being called of God uh, to be this messenger, to be this spokesperson, and there were not very many others who were, who were following God. There were hardly any others who wanted to hear any word that God would speak. Most that He speaks to hate Him all the more for the warnings of judgment and the indictments of sin that He brought before the people. I want to summarize chapter 13. God tells Jeremiah to use two illustrations, pictures, 
to reveal to the people the judgment that was coming upon them. One is a linen um, a, a linen um, sash is the word I'm looking for. A linen sash that was you would tie around your waist to hold a, a, a coat, a garb together. Uh, God said, take this linen cloth, go bury it by the river. And then a few days later, a number of days later, God told him, go and return and unbury that linen sash and, and, and pick it up and, and, and examine it. And what happened? Of course, that linen sash had, had deteriorated. It had gotten dirty. It had molded. It was ruined. And that was a picture that God was giving to his people. The, the people of God had come to a place of ruin. Their life was filled with such sin with such disobedience that God said His people are ruined before Him. Judgment was coming because of it. And then He gives them the illustration of drunkenness even, of wine, intoxication. And He says that's what it's going to be like when the Babylonians come in. It will be like a bunch of of drunken people who are stumbling around in darkness as as the great judgment from from God through Babylon coming in and, and, and wiping Jerusalem out, wiping the people of God out and leading those that survived back captives. He says it's going to be like drunkenness even. Two imageries, two pictures, two illustrations picturing this great judgment of God that was coming because of the sin of the people. And now we'll begin reading in chapter 14. There's a great famine that God brings upon the land a drought that causes a famine, a great uh, lack of rain, and of course in the agriculture uh, of of the day and age, they didn't have what we have to provide water with no rain, meant no food, no livestock to survive. And so it was a time of great turmoil, and all of this is just a seed uh, of, of the judgment of God that was to come. And so we read in Jeremiah 14, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. They mourn for the land, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. And so it's a picture, a poetic picture, of the great suffering that the people were going through under this drought. There was no water. There was no livestock to eat. There was no produce. O Lord, he says in verse 7, though our iniquities testify against us, Jeremiah is crying out now. He says, do it for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. All the hope of Israel, his Savior, in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Jeremiah, under the suffering even that he is enduring, is this drought has been brought upon the people of God because of their sin and their iniquity, Jeremiah turns to try to make intercession for the people. And yet what we'll see is the people have not repented. The people have not acknowledged their sin before God. The people have remained stubbornly hard-hearted in their rebellion and their iniquity. Thus says the Lord, verse 10, to this people, Thus they have loved to wander. 
They have not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Okay, read your Bible. Don't, don't, don't listen to modern day culture that says God will not punish sin. He does. He will. And He has and He will continue. He, he punishes sin. He says He will remember their iniquity now and He will punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, verse 11, Do not pray for this people, for their good. God tells Jeremiah, Stop praying. Don't pray for these people. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Verse 13. Then I said, this is Jeremiah speaking, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you uh, assured peace in this place. Prophets were telling them, you're not going to see the judgment of God. You're going to receive blessing and peace in the midst of all the sins that you were committing. And the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their art. Believe it or not, there were false prophets then, and there's false preachers now. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them, nor them nor their wives, their son nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Therefore you shall say this word to them, Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. If I go out to the field, then behold those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land that they do not know. So God is saying judgment's coming, and it's going to be bad. God is going to bring the harsh penalty upon them because of their wickedness. Jeremiah still cannot handle this word of God. What we're reading is a dialogue between God and Jeremiah. Jeremiah still, even though he's been told this is going to happen, even though he's been commanded not to pray for the people, what does he do in verse 19? Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. And Jeremiah is trying to intercede for the people once again. But this is Jeremiah before God, and the people are still far removed from God. He says, Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain, or can the heavens give showers? Are you not He, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you, since you have made all these things. Jeremiah is trying again to, to make a plea and intercession before God for the people, and yet the people were not repenting. People weren't turning from their sin. Jeremiah is doing this, even though God is telling him, don't pray. So 
What does God respond with? Verse 1, chapter 15. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable towards this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth, and it shall be if they say to you, Where should we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord, Such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. God says judgment will come upon them. This has been appointed, and this will happen because they will not repent. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction. You can read through the rest of the, all the way through verse 9. We won't read it for sake of time tonight, but he just speaks of the judgment that will come upon them. But I want us to read verse 10 through the remaining of the chapter because we really see, beginning in verse 10, this heart struggle with Jeremiah. As Jeremiah has now disobeyed God twice in interceding for the people, God's corrected him. God has reiterated his word that judgment is coming. What does Jeremiah do? Woe is me, my mother that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. He says, I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest, meaning I haven't taken money and people don't owe me money and yet every one of them curses me. One thing to be mad at a person because of a just reasoning and their, their malpractice, their stealing. But he says, I've never, never lent for interest, nor have I lent other people lent to me for interest. Every one of them is still cursing me. The Lord said, surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of, of adversity and in the time of affliction. Can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as a plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories. And I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know. For a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. Now Jeremiah again, verse 15. Oh Lord, you know. And remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. And your enduring patience do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah is defending his cause here, saying, God, I have taken your word. And the the poetic imagery is I've eaten it. I've, I've taken it in, and I am following it, and I'm standing for it. I'm called by your name. He says in verse 17, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream, as waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, Jeremiah, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, then you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. 
And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. I want us to see in these verses tonight just three three hard truths. Three hard truths about following God. We think following God means a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. That's what we want to believe. That's what we like to believe. That if we, we follow the Lord, and we, we especially if He's called us to something, and we pursue that call of God upon our lives, and we're obeying Him and seeking to follow His Word, we want to think it will be easy. We want to think it will be health, wealth, and prosperity. And there are many false preachers who have made who literally fill stadiums with such a message and deceiving people into thinking, follow God and everything will always work out in an earthly sense, in an earthly blessing. What we see in the Bible is warning after warning that that is actually just the opposite. It's through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. That Jesus says, if you follow after me, the world hated me, it'll hate you too. That we ought to expect tribulation. We ought to expect persecution. We ought to expect trials and difficulties, even as James warns us about. So just three hard truths about following God. First, notice, sometimes God does the opposite of what we think He should do. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes what we think God ought to do, God ends up doing, and we rejoice greatly in it, and we experience the blessing of it. But if you have followed God very long at all in your life, you have faced situations in your life where you were thinking God ought to act this way, and what ends up happening is not that. What ends up happening is often the opposite of that. There are times where God, in His sovereignty, we were just talking about it, even sharing about it, but there are times when God and His infinite wisdom that sees the whole picture, that knows the end from the beginning, does something differently than what we in our little finite pea brains think that He ought to do. We just step back from the emotion of the situation that we're caught in. It, it makes a lot of sense to think if God is intellectually superior to us, that would be the case, that there will be seasons of life that we will go through where He is at work in a way that we just don't quite understand and we even don't get it at all because He's God and because we're not. But when we're caught in the emotion of suffering, it's hard to see that logically because it hurts. Because we long with all our heart for something to be a certain way and we pray with all our heart for it to be so. And yet, sometimes, God, knowing the bigger picture, does something totally different than that for which we are praying. Such was the case for Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an Israelite. He, he is a Hebrew. He's of the people of God. And Jeremiah is a prophet to these people. Jeremiah is longing for their repentance. He 
He is one going through the drought even that they are now facing, enduring just a taste of the, the suffering of the judgment that God has promised was coming. And, and Jeremiah, even though God had already told him that people aren't going to repent, this judgment is coming, don't pray for them, Jeremiah could not help but turn to God and say, God, well, I confess I, I confess as the prophet a, a public confession of, of public sin. It's corporate here. He's saying, we are sinners. We have sinned. You are the hope of Israel. Do not forsake your covenant with your people. Your name is tied to this people. God, you can't turn your back against them forever. You can't really bring this judgment. He's making intercession. He's desiring in his understanding, and there's a goodness even in the compassion of his heart for these people in making these prayers. He's wanting it to turn out a certain way. He's wanting God to forgive. But the problem is the people weren't really seeking forgiveness. And the problem is God had a bigger plan. God had already told them, I'm going to bring a great judgment upon this people, but there will be a remnant. There will be some who will, through all of this, come to a right repentance and faith in God, and they will be restored to the land. And there's even the future promise of the the kingdom that is to come and the son of David that would come. And so all of these promises of future blessing and future restoration didn't mean quite as much as they should have meant to Jeremiah in that moment of affliction, in that moment of suffering. If you've ever been there, you know it's true that in in the pressing emotion of suffering, It's hard to find the comfort in the future promises of God like we ought to. Like, you know, you should, but in the moment so so pressing upon you is the affliction of the present, whatever the situation is, whether that's a sickness or loss of a loved one unexpectedly, cancer, uh, you, you fill in the blank of whatever persecution, whatever suffering it is. Jeremiah was under the, the weight of this of, of this drought and the people and their their animosity towards him and their rejection of the message and their constant sin and he's he, he's longing for a, a revival honestly he's longing for the people to turn and for God to restore for God to forgive and, and this is what he is seeking this is what he is praying for and yet God tells him verse 1 of chapter 15 even if Moses and Samuel stood before me my mind would not be favorable towards this people give it up Jeremiah you're not Moses and you're not Samuel even if they were to be the ones interceding I'm not relenting of this judgment because the people have gone this far from me they they aren't repenting they aren't returning this judgment is definite you ever had God not do something you really thought that He should do? Have you ever been praying for healing? And praying and praying and even fasting and yet healing doesn't come. I think we've all been there. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 a great verse to remember when such seasons of life come. God says, My thoughts aren't your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There will be seasons of life where things will happen. Sufferings will come. And you will have no, re- no, no, no understanding of why. 
And though you're pouring your heart out to God for it to be different, it isn't different. Understand that. That that's not an abnormal thing for a follower of God to be going through. It's actually a common theme in the Bible. Look to the life of Job. (laughs) The sufferings of Job with no understanding why. Greatest sufferings that he endured. Not knowing why. Think to Habakkuk that we looked at a few months back on how long, oh Lord, how long is this going to go on? He, he didn't understand what God was doing in the midst of all that was going on. Over and over again, we see that testified to in the Scripture. We know it even in life experience. Again, if you follow God very long, there have been seasons you've gone through where God is not doing what you think He ought to do. Or God is not answering the prayer like you think He ought to answer it. Sometimes God does the opposite of what we think He should do. Notice, secondly, during these times, it's easy to get discouraged and even frustrated with God. When those moments come where you're praying, praying, praying for something to be this way and it ends up being that way, that that is a, a, a powerful temptation to, to get discouraged and to even get frustrated with God as Jeremiah does both here. He gets discouraged, even depressed, and he gets to a place of such frustration with God that, that he questions the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. I've always appreciated the honesty of the Bible. The, the, the Bible is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. If it were, it's written in a bad way because it doesn't mythologize the heroes of the Bible. It doesn't paint them to be perfect, to be heroes of the faith that are like untouchable. The, the Bible is brutally honest about the depravity, the weakness the failures of the heroes of the Bible. Such is the case here with Jeremiah as the prophet of God. The Bible is brutally honest about the, the struggles of Jeremiah, about his weakness, about his doubts and his fears, and even his discouragement that we're reading about here. You think of David and his many failures. You think of every character in the Bible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible paints for us not a picture of their inward inner, inner strength, but but actually their inner weakness and their failures and their, their, their sins. And by the grace of God, they did what they did. By the strength of God, they, they were what they were. Such is the case with Jeremiah. He was just as weak and messed up as we all are. And in verses 10 through 18, we read about his pity party. Verse 10, he, he wishes he was never even born. He says, woe is me and my mother that you have even born me. Like Job, you know, you read of Job where Job 10 and verse 18, he says, Why then have you brought me out of the womb, all that I had perished, and no eye had seen me? I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave, he said. It would have been better than to go, what I'm go-, go through what I'm going through. Je- Jeremiah saying something similar here. Whoa, that I was even born. I'm a man of strife and contention to the whole earth is against me. And he says, it's not about money. I've not de- deceived anybody, defrauded anybody, and yet everyone still curses me. Discouragement set in. Verses 15 through 17, he, he came to a place of really defending in, in a, almost a humble brag. Everybody knows what humble bragging is, right? Where it's a brag, but you do it with the veil of humility. 
This is a humble brag that Jeremiah is doing here. Lord, I, I'm the one that has remembered you and, and gone through all this temp, uh, persecution for you and for your sake. I've suffered rebuke. He says, I've eaten your word. I've taken it in. And it's been the joy to my heart. I, I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. And he says, I didn't sit with the assembly of the mockers of the sinners, nor did I rejoice with them. But I sat alone because of you. He, he's kind of having a humble brag pity party. God, I have done all of this for you. And the question that he goes to is, why haven't you done anything for me? You've heard that before, haven't you? Why me? I follow you, Lord. I'm, I'm doing what I should do. I'm in church. I'm, I'm striving to do what he wants. Why, why is this happening to me? Why is God not doing this to me? Woe, woe is me. Why is my pain per- perpetual? Verse 18, and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed, then he says, will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream and his waters that fail? As he's in the middle of a drought and the water's all drying up, he says, God, is this what you are to me? You provide you know, a, a stream that promises life and I've turned to you, I've followed you, I've committed my ways to you, and now the stream dries up and leaves me a fam- in a famine, leaves me in a place of drought and a desert questions the faithfulness of God. He questions the goodness of God. Think of Elijah, another man in the Bible that got to a place of such depression, of discouragement, that he prayed, God, would you just take my life? Because he's running um, from um, Jezebel, right? The queen. 1 Kings 19 and verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and he sat down under a tree and he prayed that he might die. And said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. It's a natural thing to get discouraged and to doubt when things aren't going like we think they should. God had warned Jeremiah in the beginning in chapter 1. He, he told Jeremiah, you will be proclaiming a message to a people that will not hear. You're going to be preaching to a people that will hate you all the more for the word that you're going to bring to them. Though he was warned about it in the affliction of the present suffering that he was enduring, he got discouraged and he questioned God and he got frustrated with God. There is a real temptation to get to that place when you go through suffering. And again, anybody that's walked with the Lord any length of time at all, you know it. You're praying for something and it goes the opposite of how you prayed. And you're longing for just the, the normal things, the expectations of just a normal life, and you're following God, and you're seeking Him in everything you're doing, and then an abnormal thing happens, something that you think shouldn't happen to you. It's easy to get discouraged, and it's easy to get frustrated and question the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. Therefore, we get to verse, or point three rather, We must always be about the work. I really thought of just putting fighting here, of fighting. There is a fight of faith that we must fight. Even Paul says, I fought the good faith. It's a race that must be run and ran with endurance and and, and through every trial, putting off every burden, every weight that, that sets us back. We must always be about the work of repenting and renewing our faith in God. 
that the, the, the Christian life, the life of a follower of God, if I were to word it in Old Testament language, is not that you come to Him and turn to Him and then put it on autopilot as everything takes care of itself after you've turned to Him. That's not the life of an Old Testament saint. That's definitely not the life of a New Testament saint, of a New Testament Christian, of a New Testament believer. That, that when you turn to Him, you, you begin the journey. You, you begin the fight in that moment. It's not a fight that is finished. Now, you're saved in that moment. You're justified in that moment. By His grace, you become a child of God in that moment. But, but the life of following Him in this broken world that we live in it is a struggle, is a battle, is a fight that must be fought. And it calls for a daily confession. For a daily examination of your life and your heart. For a, a daily renewal in the Lord of, of He that comes after me must take up His cross once and follow after me. No, daily. Daily and follow after me. It's an ongoing battle that is to be fought. In verse 19, God kind of puts the final word on uh, over Jeremiah. And He says, Jeremiah, this is a call to Jeremiah personally, not to Israel and the people of God. This is to Jeremiah. If you return, Jeremiah, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you return, that means if you repent, if you turn from the, the way you're going and the things you're doing and the, the, the spiraling way that he was heading that was away from God, you return to me, God says, then I will bring you back. If you confess your sinfulness, your weakness, your doubt, your fears, your, your, your faults and accusations, if you, you turn from that, God says, I, I will bring you back. It, it reminds me of the promise that God gives to us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness written to believers there. John writing to believers. These things, you know, talking about how we know we're saved all through it and how we ought to behave as Christians. He's writing to Christians and he says, if you confess your, your sins, God is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That there is to be a, a daily confession of sins before the Lord and it's not just a one-time thing of come to God and ask Him for forgiveness and then you're saved and put it on autopilot. No, it's a, a continual fight to say I'm going to, to, to examine my heart and put off the things that I need to put off. I'm going to, to work at confessing the things I need to confess, the, the sins that I need to rid my life out of. I, I, you must repent to return to the Lord, confess to be renewed, and God promises He will. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He continues and He says, If you take out the precious from the vile, you shall be as my mouth. Now some modern translations try to smooth the Hebrew out. Hebrew is very vague and general, and it's up to the context to define a number of words and even how we would structure it and word it in English. And so it is open to some interpretation. And so some modern translations smooth it out here and just deal with if you say worthy words and get rid of unworthy words, then you'll be my mouthpiece. And so they tie it all together with the mouthpiece um, in the Hebrew here. I, I think the King James older translations get it better. The American Standard, they just kind of let the tension lie here because it's a little funny sounding. If you take the precious from the vile, you shall be of my mouth. What is that exactly talking about? I don't think we need to smooth it out and interpret it um, in the uh, translation. Just, just keep it literal and 
let the tension lie because I think he's speaking about more than just the words here. I think he's speaking about the whole soul issue going on in, in the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if you take the precious out from the vile, you're going to be my mouthpiece. That, that even within the heart of Jeremiah and the struggle he was going through and the discouragement and in the doubt and frustration with God, God is telling Jeremiah, there are things in your life that are good, that are precious in my eyes, of worth and of value, and there are things that are vile, that are worthless, that, that don't serve any purpose at all, that aren't pleasing to God. Jeremiah, you, you must... Take the precious out of the vial. You must take that which is of worth and, and, and put on that and put off, to use New Testament lingo, there, there must be a putting on and a putting off. There are things that, that you must put away from your heart and that you must cast off within your heart. And then there are things that you must put on, that you must cling to, that you must be renewed in. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I think is a New Testament application of what God is commanding Jeremiah here. Verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. He says, you were not restricted by us, but you were restricted by your own affections. Because now in return for the saying, I speak to you as children, you also be open. Here's what he tells the Corinthian church. He says, don't be equally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be so close with a lost world and people that don't know God dealing in the context, we often apply it to marriage, but this is dealing with life. Don't, don't, don't be so aligned with people that are anti-God. Why? For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, a false god? Or what part of a, uh, has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, verse 17, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Remove the precious from the vile. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord our Almighty. And then verse 1 of chapter 7 a weird chapter break here. It really should be after verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's so many believers that remain infants in Christ, babes in their Christianity, babies, because they don't get this. The, the Christian life, the following of God, is a battle, is a fight. And there must be a removing of the separating of the, the precious from the vile. That there are things that we are to put off and there are things that we are to put on. That we are to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting the holiness in of God and the, the, the fear of God. Jeremiah needed to rid his heart of this discouragement. He needed to rid his heart of the frustration he had against God and of the question he had that was in a bad way, questioning the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. He had to put that off. He had to, to kill those affections in his heart that were wrong. 
And he lives to renew that which is precious, a right faith, a right belief in the promises of God. And so God reiterates his promise for him there at the end of verse 15. I will be with you. There will be a bronze wall. I'll fight for you. I'll save you and deliver you from the hand of the wicked. I'll redeem you from the grip of the terrible. He, he had a renewed promise of God. One more thing he told them, let them return to you and you don't return to them. Tying in with this thought, he, he said, don't, don't become like the people that are going to get the judgment of God. Because if they're going to change, let them change to be like you. You're not to change to be like them. What a word for the church today. Where we think you've got to be like them to reach them. No. no don't, don't become like them to reach them. If you become like them, you become them. <laughs> and there are many so-called churches that have become so carnal, so worldly, so, so like lost people that they are lost. God says to Jeremiah, don't, don't become like them in your, your doubting of me and in your questioning of me and your discouragement against me. He says, no, no, Jeremiah, you stand. You can go to Ephesians 6 where it talks about the armor of God and doing all that you can do um, to stand. Stand, therefore. Uh, there, there is a standing that we're called to in the, the truth of God in our living, in our doctrine, in our practice. Three hard truths about following God. Sometimes God does the opposite of what you think He should do. During these times, it's easy to get discouraged and frustrated with God. And therefore, you must always be about the work of repenting and renewing your faith in God. This is a message for Christians. a message for believers tonight. If you're not a believer, you need to begin the fight. <laughs> you need to get in the fight. You need to turn and repent and believe upon God, upon Christ, what He did for you at Calvary. For those who know Him, as we come to an invitation, let it be a time of examination, uh, a time where you ask God, am I, am I really daily confessing? Am I really daily renewing my faith? Daily refreshing my mind and heart with the promises of God and daily preaching the Gospel to myself, daily clinging to those promises, knowing God is who He says He is. Heavenly Father, we come to You. We thank You that You are who You say You are. We don't have to doubt and guess and wonder even by our all the variation of our life experiences, Lord. You, you don't reveal who you are through our life experiences. Lord, you reveal who you are through your word. And you've revealed who you are through Christ who came, the word incarnate. And so, Lord, may you, through your spirit, through your word, uh, show us who you are tonight, even afresh and anew, that every believer would be renewed in our faith, in your promises, our faith in your word, and just a, a childlike faith even to know that when things don't go the way, way we think that they ought to go, that Lord, you are God and we are not. You are bigger and have the, the, the whole picture in mind and we do not. And give us grace, we pray. Uh, forgive us of our sins. Renew us so that we can make a stronger walk with you. And Lord, if there be any here that don't know you, I pray tonight, even now, they would turn and believe upon Christ, the Lord and Savior. We pray this all in Jesus' precious, holy name.